0: James chapter 5, if you'll go ahead and turn there, Uh, you do have a handout now, Uh, hopefully uh, that's something we've we've gotten back to, we have sanit, well we didn't sanitize them directly but we've handled those with care, uh, so you can uh, use those freely, also those of you who are joining us by live stream, there's a digital handout that you can click on below the screen here uh, and that can help you also as you follow along here in the sermon. Well, we've made our way to the last of the sermon series, Faith That Works. Last time you have to see that video, okay? Uh, you should have it memorized by now. But anyway, last time you have to see that. And, and it's very interesting how James ends this letter. He ends the letter, and I've entitled it, and finally, pray. Now, according to the Pew Research Center, 55% of Americans say they pray daily. of evangelical Protestants say they pray daily. That's 8 out of 10 of those who have light faith like us. 8 out of 10. According to LifeWay research, Americans were asked if their prayers are answered. 25% said all their prayers are answered. Now, some could be looking at it from the point of view that God answers prayer no matter what. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's wait. So there could be some in that figure. 21% 21% said most of their prayers are answered. 37% said some of their prayers are answered. And then 3% said none of their prayers are answered. Boy, what a sad commentary when it comes to prayer on that. Now, think, I want you to look at what the things that people pray for. said they pray for those who mistreat them. Now, that's probably, that's good. They they do do that. 37% pray for their enemies. 21% pray to win the lottery. (laughs) One in five. 20% pray for success of some sort. 13% pray for their sports team to win. Have you ever really wondered if God cares about that? I mean, I know he doesn't care for the Dallas Cowboys, Duke University. I know he doesn't care for any of those. I can, I can say that with definite no. But does he really care? 70, uh, excuse me, 7% pray for a good parking space. Wow. I can kind of relate to this one, but I've never prayed this. 7% pray they would not get caught speeding. 7%. Uh, I would dare not ask God to protect me. I do what the consequences are due when I do that. But anyway, now from this list of what people pray for, we can see that even those who pray many times pray for trivial matters. It's really, I mean, have you ever thought about what are we commanded to pray for? Well, well, there's one thing in particular we have been commanded to pray for, and that is for our enemies, haven't we? Haven't we been told to pray for that? We've been told through the model prayer to pray for our daily needs. We've been told that in our prayer we're to worship God as he is, to to, to call his attributes and praise him for those attributes. So there's several things in Scripture that basically tell us what we need to pray for. Now getting back to James, look at the introduction on your outline. James closes this letter, his letter, written to followers of Jesus with specific instructions on how they can serve and minister to one another through prayer. So my question to you is this, I think many people would say that people who just pray for things, maybe that's kind of trivial when it comes to our our asking. Even though it does say ask, uh, and it will be given knock and all those things, there are some clues to scripture that say that. But my question to you is this, I think that we really should be praying for others. I think it's important that we pray for others. So let me ask you, do you pray for others? How do you pray for others do you pray that God would change their hearts do, do you pray that God would bring healing into their life and that's just not physical healing how do you pray for other people and so look on your outline the prayer of the righteous the prayer of the faithful now think of this those prayers are prayers for oneself and prayers for others But there's three key areas that we find in this text that we are to pray for. The prayer of the righteous prays for the emotionally sick. The emotionally sick. Look at verse 13 of chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. It's basically that idea of those who are suffering is the idea of those who are weary, those who are possibly broken in spirit, those who may even be Discouraged, And that seems to be what James is talking about. He's praying for, or he's saying that we need to lift up those who are discouraged. And, and if we're one, we need to lift ourselves up in that. But not only that, those who may be depressed. Now think about his audience. We talked about this before. He's writing to a group of people who are scattered around, and the reason they're scattered across the Roman Empire is because persecution has come to true followers of Jesus, for those who name Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The church is basically operating at a, at a threat. And so there's this whole idea that's going on. And this has become, I believe, he's writing to those who have grown weary in the persecution. Now let me ask you this of course we're not dealing with the persecution they dealt with but i think many of us would say yeah we're kind of growing weary with the covid we're growing weary with what we see in our streets we're growing weary with with all the things in america that that we're discouraged by and all these different things i think it could we could easily be there and so basically he's saying we need to pray for not only ourselves we need to pray for others who are emotionally discouraged those who are broken in spirit those who are weary now let me say this why it's important that we do that both discouragement and depression can be very a very dangerous time for people let me tell you why this is something i've uncovered in a lot of counseling that i've done over the last 20 some 30 years i've discovered that when people get discouraged when people get depressed they look for unhealthy escapes. They look for things to help take their mind off of the where they are, what they're dealing with. And many times, those can become very unhealthy. This is when they grow weak in the face of temptation. This is when self-destructive patterns of behavior begin to happen. You say, well, how can you back this up biblically? Well, King David. How many of you have ever read the actual account Of King David falling for Bathsheba how many of you have actually read it we've all heard the story we've heard someone talk about the story but have you actually read the account and the way that it played out what you will find the preceding verses to before David even lays his eyes on Bathsheba is the fact that you'll find that he appears to be depressed he appears to be discouraged. You find that in those first verses of the story of, of, about David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we begin to see in, in David that this discouragement became an unhealthy escape as he pursues Bathsheba. And we understand that the consequences became very great. How about the prophet Elijah? You remember, I, I tell you, when you see these great people in Scripture and you begin to look at someone like Elijah, who, who, who I mean, he had power. God used him in miraculous ways. And, and he's there facing the prophets, the bell prophets there uh, at Mount Carmel. I mean, what a great victory. He's called down fire from heaven. And, and God has, has done great things through him. In the very next scene, what do we find? He's running from Jezebel and Ahab. He's scared out of his mind. And part of his fear was developed from discouragement. We find him there at a brook, and he's calling out to God, and he's basically saying, God, I'm the only one who cares about anything that you care about around here. (laughs) And there's several things that God did to help him through that time, but it all became discouragement. You know what the difference is between King David and Elijah is the fact that Elijah still sought God. Even when in his whining and complaining, he's still seeking God when you read the account. And we see that this is the time we need to turn for those for support. This is the time we need to pray for one another. I've seen so many people destroy their lives because they didn't know what to do with their discouragement and their depression. You see, mental illness is just as destructive as physical illness. Many of you as families have been touched by this, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. So for those discouraged, how do we pray? How do we pray for those who are emotionally sick? There's several things here. This is not on your outline, but there's several things that maybe this will help you as you pray for those around you, that they would seek God. They wouldn't turn to some unhealthy escape, that they would literally seek God, that they would be supported by others, that you would just pray that God would just bring other people into their life to encourage them and, and help them through this time, that they would seek treatment if necessary, that they would not fall into temptation. Because this is a very dangerous time for people to fall into de- temptation. That they would reality check their, that they would test a reality check their perceptions. It's that whole idea, I don't know about you, but when I'm discouraged. First of all, let me ask you, has any of you ever been discouraged for a season in your life? We've all been touched by it, haven't we? Isn't it amazing how the enemy works on our minds? He he works on our minds. I mean, the worst case scenarios we fall for when we're discouraged, don't we? We just kind of fall for those things. There's times where we need to uh, test a, a reality check in our about our perceptions because we get to a point like Elijah did, where we feel like all these things are against us. They're, I'm the only one hanging out here, and the enemy just keeps feeding lies. It's almost like if he can get you to the point of discouragement, he feels like the enemy almost feels like he's won half the battle, and he just wants to bury you in it, and he does it through your mind. And you need to, that's the reason you need to stick close to Scripture. That's the reason you need believers who, who know the truth to speak into your life during that time. It's so important. Here's another way we can pray. That they would, re, uh, that they would overcome by reaching out to others who have their own needs. You see, so many times when I've been discouraged, I, uh, I, I, sometimes I just sink deeper and deeper. How many of you feel that? You just sink deeper and deeper. And, and part of the problem is I've become so obsessed with myself Self-pity sets in. How many of you have been there? And all of a sudden, it's, it's my life, I'm only looking through my, at my life through this lens. And, and at times, it feels like survival. But the thing we need to realize is God has placed us here to serve one another. And one thing that helps me in that, in that condition is the ability to, to, to get my eyes off myself and see the needs of other people. And join them and helping them. It's amazing how that works. Another thing is that they could once again experience the joy of the Lord. You just literally pray, Lord, I pray that they would find their joy in you. Not their joy in this unhealthy escape or what they think will make them happy and these extremes that they're going down, this destructive path that they're going down, but Lord, that they would seek you as their need. Next, the prayer of the righteous. They not only pray for the emotionally sick, they pray for the physically sick. Look at verse 14. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then look at the first part of verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, let me just say this. I, I want to start by saying this. For, for many, there seem to be different ways to interpret these verses. Some people interpret them one way and some people the other. But let me give you some ideas of what this could mean. When he says let them call for the elders, it's the idea that the weak is calling for the spiritually strong. It's those who are not, any, who, who are not capable anymore, basically it's the scene here, they're not capable anymore of doing things on their own. They need the church. They need other people to join them in what they're dealing with. How many of you have ever been there? You just need others to intercess for you, to be there for you, to help, to support you, to speak truth into your life. And there's some of that going on. And then he says, anointing the person with oil. Now, there's two ways to look at this. And if you're looking to Scripture, there's two ways it seems to be seen in Scripture. All in Scripture is a sign of the Holy Spirit. It's literally a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in a person. And, and so we know that that's a sign, but awe is also a sign of medication. It's, it's clearly seen in Scripture, thou anointest my head with awe. Do you know what that is in, in Psalms 23? It's medication, that he knows exactly what the need is, and he brings that to us. And sometimes it's medicinal, and that seems to be what he's talking about. So either these, these, this verse can mean that it has more of a ceremonial meaning Or it has a very practical meaning in the fact that it's not just prayer. It's a medicinal thing that we pray for them physically and we help them physically. I can personally see both as a possible correct interpretation. People uh, over the years that I've been here. There's been people who've said, you know, I'm, I'm looking at James chapter 5, and it tells me that I need to call for the elders of the church. And there's been times where I've called out uh, people in our church and said, hey, such and such wants us to come over and pray over them, anoint them with all. And, and, and we go, and, and we pray, and we anoint them with all. And, and it, it is a ceremonial time. And then there's times where we can look at this passage and say, hey, it's not just ceremonial. It, it may mean that we are to pray over them, a prayer of faith. But not only that that they seek some form of medical attention. Both could be right in this case. And then it says this, in the name of the Lord. Now, it does not mean that God has to do what we ask. Because it it doesn't mean, okay, God, we did this, we did this. Now, you got to come through. It's not a demand on God. Now, why would it be good that it not be a demand on God? Because I'm going to be honest with you, most of the time I'm short-sighted. I see something right there in front of me. I want it handled right there. But guess who sees the big picture? God himself. He sees the big picture. There's a greater work going on many times. And so it seems to me that that we are to seek God's mind in this matter. There are times when God heals. How many of you done that? There's times when God heals. Some of you are a testimony of the healing work of God. And there are times in which he chooses not to heal. I mean, we see it. The Bible says our days are given to us or numbered by the Lord. And what many people don't take into consideration is the fact that there is a sickness that is unto death. And guess what? That's eventually going to happen to all of us unless Jesus comes back. There will be a sickness unto death in our future. Some of you are saying, well, hallelujah. I'm glad I came this morning to hear I'm going to die. I mean, (laughs) there's something to this. So then, what does the beginning of verse 15 mean? It says, and the prayer of the faith, the prayer of the faith will save or restore the sick, and the Lord will raise that person up. To understand the passage, the possible confusion in this passage, you may need to look at the phrase, will save or restore the sick. Now, the first question you've got to ask is, in what way are they sick? Are they sick physically, emotionally, or spiritually? If physically, many claim the promise that if a person's faith is strong enough, they will be healed physically. And if he's not healed or they're not healed, you know what you hear some say? I've actually heard people say, well, I guess their faith wasn't strong enough. I guess it didn't work. Their faith isn't strong enough. How about if they're emotionally sick? What if they're discouraged or depressed? The visit and prayers of the spiritually strong, those elders increase their faith in such a way to bring encouragement and therefore emotional healing. And I've definitely seen that before. If spiritually sick, maybe they're backslid or living in sin, the visit and prayers of the spiritually strong provide support for confession and repentance and, and, and restoration of faith. It's that whole idea that, that, that this person is being confronted about where they are in their faith. And maybe it's one of them, according to what we read, they're asking for it. They've come to the end of themselves. How do we know that? Well, the clue seems to rest with the rest of verse 15. And if he's committed sins, a person's committed sins, they shall be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. And so basically you have this whole idea that there's a lot of things that could go at play here. Now, let me, let me put this on the bottom shelf. I believe it could be any of the three and may be intended to be taken as all three. But for me, when it comes to the physically sick, I believe if they are not healed, it's not necessarily because someone's lacking faith here. But possibly they did not understand that their sickness was unto death. You see, if we take this verse to its extreme and we continue to pray for healing, continue to pray for healing then there would be people who have never died, right? So therefore, do you know what it tells me? It tells me I need to be discerning when I pray for a person. It tells me that even the person needs to be discerning. And, And how do we know? Is this a sickness unto death, or is this something that God wants to demonstrate his power through bringing people together to pray in which there's evidence that God is working in and through the person's life? We have to use discernment. Think about it. As I said before, if God answered all prayers of physical healing, there would be no physical death. So there is the case in which there is sickness unto death. And we've all witnessed it with those that we've loved, haven't we? And we've prayed for healing. How many of you prayed for healing for someone who's passed? We all have at times. And it's not a matter of someone lacking faith. Listen, the economy of the world in this fallen world in which we live, it is appointed one wants to live and and wants to die. It's going to happen. That's the bigger promise there. So we have to be discerning when it comes to these matters. How about this? The prayer of the righteous prays for the emotionally sick, prays for the physically sick, but also prays for the spiritually sick. Look at the end of verse 15 again. It says, And if this person has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then it says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. Now, what does this mean? In this context, it seems to carry the idea that they are suffering because of sin in their life. How many of you know of someone or yourself have suffered because of sin in your life? Oh, yeah, we've been there, haven't we? Some of you are like, oh, I don't have a clue what you Yes, you do. We've been there. We, we have suffered. Now, just because we suffer does not necessarily mean we're in sin. There's a doctrine out there that says that too. That's false. If that were the case, Jesus was the biggest sinner there ever was. Every day of his life, there was a measure of suffering associated with what he did. The apostle Paul. So it, some suffering has nothing to do with direct sin in our lives. But there are times in which it could be. For King David, it was. It was. There was sin in his life. There's something that needed to be corrected. It set off a chain reaction in his life that affected not only him, but the life of Bathsheba and the life of his children in the future. So there are some things that can carry on. In this context, it seems to carry the idea that they are suffering because of their sin. Look at what it says, committed sins. It's talking about stronghold. It could be addictive behavior. It could be that idea of living in sin. Those who have fallen into temptation. Those not trusting God who are filled with fear and anxiety. Those who now need restoring. Listen to what it says next. The person will be forgiven by God and should be forgiven by others by others we as followers of jesus should readily forgive those who have sinned and help bring spiritual healing and restoration you know when you look out there you see all these people have appeared to uh, have fallen and some have actually said yes i have fallen And, and, and i'm just so glad that god's not a one chance god i'm glad he's a second chance god And for some of us, third chance and fourth chance and fifth chance. I mean, he's a God that that desires to bring restoration of relationships. And then he says this, confess your trespasses to one another, then pray for one another, and the person may be healed. But in the meantime, we may need to ask God to work in their life to turn them back to him. It doesn't automatically say, okay, when you pray, Boy, he's going to set it all straight right then and there. Now, how many of you realize it's not right then or right there? Some of y'all have been into a life process with praying for certain people in their life. I, I know because you've shared some of your concerns and what God is doing. So, but look at the end of verse 16. It says the effective, fervent prayer. That's a passionate person. The prayer they're praying is heartfelt. Of a righteous person, this is a person who's right with God, avails much. It's saying that this prayer is powerful and accomplishes much. Now, this is a person who has much compassion for those who are spiritually sick in need of restoration. Now, let's use an example that many of us in this room possibly could be dealing with. Some of you may have prayed for a wayward child. And maybe you've raised them to know faith in jesus and for you maybe it gets to the point where you think that none of it's working but let me assure you it is working let's listen, listen to the verse proverbs 22 6 this is what some of you have claimed in your prayers train up a child raise up a child in the way that he or she should go and when they are old they will not depart from it how many of you have claimed that one before for your child Okay, how many of you right now are still praying and been praying, it's been years praying, and it's just, there's the prayer. There it is again, there it is again. God, I'm not seeing a whole lot, what are you doing? Do you believe God works behind the scenes? Has God ever worked behind the scenes in your own life? Yeah, where it becomes obvious. And and, and that's what we need to understand. Let me tell you what this verse means. Let me tell you what it means when you pray for a wayward child. Here's what it literally means. Practically, here's what it looks like. They have to step over what they have been taught to reach out to evil. Let's say that this line is everything you've attempted to put into their life, a faith that's real, a faith that's there. And let's just say there, came, there was a time in their life where it was so evident that God was working in their life, there was something going on, you were excited about what God was doing, and all of a sudden, they went, they're went wayward now. And all of a sudden, there's that whole idea that they've they've departed. Okay, could it be that they've departed from the faith? No, I, I personally believe when someone's saved, they're saved for eternity. You say there's a flaw in that. I haven't found it in scripture. To to, to there, I believe once saved, always saved. But let me say this: here's the key. You got to be saved first. You got to be truly saved. That's the key. Some people say, well, a person who's truly saved, uh, at some point, they're going to come back. That faith's going to come back, and that may be true, but I'm just here to say, you: once God begins a relationship with us, he doesn't just write us off. God continues to work in our life, and so every time you claim this this verse over, over your child or every time you pray for that child, here's what they literally have to do. They have to step over what you've put into them, what you're praying against to, to, to get to that evil, to get to that sin. Now, let me tell you what I've heard many people, wayward children say once they came back, they basically said they were miserable through the whole thing. They were reaching out to things that they thought would bring fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness in their life. And every time they got there, they found out it wasn't lasting. And they did it again, it wasn't lasting. And they did it again, it wasn't lasting. Here's what I believe it is. I think mom and dad cared enough to instill faith in that child, and they can't get past it. And I also believe that mom's out there praying and and praying and pouring her heart out to God. And it is accomplishing much because every time little junior begins to walk towards evil and walk towards sin, he or she is most miserable in that. Many times you can track their misery by just watching their life and you see it. Many of them are even wearing it on their face. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Many of you have been there. You've seen it. God is still working. God is still working. Next, the prayer of the resolute. In verse 17, James gives us an example from the Old Testament who was resolute when it came to prayer. Look at verse 17. It says, Elijah. Isn't it interesting? Elijah. I mean, who's this guy? Well, he's a prophet who did some amazing things. He's also a prophet who got down in the dumps, who came to the end of himself. How many of you find some fulfillment in that? He still uses the example God is using. He is. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. You know what this is saying? He was a man no different than we are. Yet there was something that didn't make him different. He said because he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and, the heaven, uh, and heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. What this verse is talking about is, is playing off the fact that prayer can be very effective. Very effective. And, and the, the matter that Elijah was praying and what he, he here's what Elijah did. He found out the heart of God. God's heart was that he wanted to bring correction to his people. And, and Elijah came across that, so he began to pray God's will in the matter, and all of a sudden, he began to pray, he began to pray, and God began to orchestrate what was originally in the heart of God in the first place. And Elijah got to come in and have a ringside seat to it all. Isn't it pretty cool when you begin, you get the heart of God on a matter, and you begin to see something, and all of a sudden, God gives you a ringside seat to see it right there. That's the kind of prayer life he wants us to have. That's where he's calling us to. And so the first thing we pick up on here in verse 17 is that he prays passionately. Elijah, he got discouraged. He had fears. He had a nature just like us. But he prayed earnestly. Listen, let me just say this about our nation. He was praying praying that God would work in his nation. Our nation needs the prayers of the righteous and the resolute. How many of you agree with that? passionately crying out to God on behalf of our nation to forgive its sin, to be restored. The answer, listen to our nation's problems cannot be fixed with policies that offer hopeful change, but with prayers that offer true heart change. That is the only thing that's gonna change this nation. The only thing. The last Sunday of September, I hope you'll be praying for me. I've already been working on the sermon. But I want to help lead our church in how we can pray for our nation in the coming days. And so I hope you'll pray for me as as God works in my heart about what to share with you the last Sunday in September about our nation and how we need to pray for our nation. And I hope you'll join us for that. Next, the prayer of the resolute not only prays passionately but prays purposely. If you look, it says that Elijah prayed that it would not rain and it did not. And then he prays that it will rain and it did. Now, think of this. He prays specifically with the big picture in mind. Here's here's where a lot of our prayers come up short. We pray, and and, and we're very short-sighted in our prayers. Let me remind you again, God sees the big picture. He sees the big picture in in your wayward child. He sees the big picture in in the heart of a nation. He sees the big picture. There's something where he's calling us there. But we need to learn to pray purposely. So many times our prayers are all wrapped up in us. The lottery, right? That we won't get caught speeding, right? That we'll find a parking space. Come on. That our team will win. Okay, I have prayed that one time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, I don't think God cares. I mean, you say, he does care. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Have you ever thought that you got both teams are praying for the win? Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever? <laughs> anyway. Okay, let's move on. All right. Um, but we, listen, prayers, our prayers, here, here's what we need to be praying more than anything, more than the act, the actual situation itself. Listen, what we need is wisdom and discernment on how to pray about these situations. You see, the problem we do is we come to a conclusion about how we think it needs to be played out. And so we, we sit there and we tell God, how many of you are guilty of this? We tell God how we want to see it played out. What we need to be praying is that God will give us the mind of the matter, that we will have wisdom to know how to pray about it, that we will have discernment to know how to pray about it. So he prayed purposely. Elijah gained the big picture of what God was doing. Thirdly, pray. Uh, he prays persistently. Look at verse 18. It says, and he prayed again. It's literally that idea of seeking God in his will. Let me tell you something about persistent prayers, okay? This is very important. Persistent prayers create perceptive and proper prayers. Let me tell you how I know this. I know this from experience. Some of you know it from experience. I've heard you talk. How many of you have ever started praying about something, and you thought you knew the mind of God, but as you prayed persistently, God began to change what that prayer began to look like. And all of a sudden, you started, what that tells me is you're starting to take more of the mind of God in the matter. You you basically uh, have gotten to a point where God brings wisdom and discernment about how to pray about the matter. God's done that with me many times. That's the reason I say we need to be people of persistent prayer about certain things because that's where God changes our perception of what's really going on. I've seen it in my own life. Notice how James is closing out this letter. Here's basically what he's saying in these last two verses. Help those who are discouraged from persecution, those who have wandered from the faith, those who profess one thing but live another. That's why he's getting ready to share with us these last two verses. So the first thing we see here is the prayer of the restorer. And this idea, he prays for the believer's return to truth. You see, again, the way I see these last two verses is more of the ending of the whole letter. That's what I'm seeing here. That's what I think I'm seeing here. You know why? Because he's, he's written something very practical. It's basically the return to the truth that these people who have wandered away, that they would return to the truth. Now, the only way you can return to the truth is you gotta know the truth, right? Right? To return to the truth, you gotta know the truth. That's the problem with many Christians in this day and age. Christians are receiving truth from media. Christians are, are, are receiving truth from misguided denominations from misguided pastors and teachers. It needs to be found in the Word of God. That's how you know truth. That's how you know you need to return to truth. And that's why he saw it. Jesus once said he was the truth. So, when we're grounded in truth, let me just tell you this. When we're grounded in truth, it doesn't mean we're free from any suffering and all this stuff, but we're on the path. Listen, when we're grounded in truth, and we're living truth, we're on the path of God's best that a fallen world can give, okay? How many of you agree you live in a fallen world? How many of you agree it's never gonna be perfect? Never gonna be perfect. Never will be perfect. But what we need to understand is when we're grounded in truth and we live that truth, we're moving towards God's best. Instead of grounded in truth, however, many people are wandering in deception. That's the enemy's worst, that's his deceptive ways. Why is it, why is it that it looks like that the enemy's winning? How many of you sometimes wonder, why? it looks like he's winning. Here's why I believe he appears to be winning. And by the way, he's not going to win in the end. You know that, right? I know the rest of the story, just like you should know the rest of the story. But here's why it appears that he's winning. is because a lot of Bible-professing Christians who say they pray, have no wisdom no discernment they don't know the truth they're accepting the truth from someone else that may not be the truth they're not looking at it for themselves it could be anything from watching a news outlet to watching wrong theology to hearing bad doctrine to, to wishful thinking you see the enemy has a gospel did you know that? He has the good news, or what he considers the good news, and the world promotes it. We need to get back to the truth. So he prays for the believer's return to truth. Secondly, prays for the believer's restoration from tragedy. Look at verse 20. He says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sin." Wow, wouldn't it be cool to be used by God in such a way, to see a person saved, to see a to see a person truly come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ in such a way that it radically changes their life? You see, that's what James is telling us. James is telling us. I think he's done a good job. He's basically said, "Hey, if you say you're a believer, where's the proof? Let me give you some ideas. How about your 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 speech? How about your attitude?" How about this? How many of you remember? How do you deal with suffering? How do you do this? Is there proof that you have this true faith? That's what he's asking all through. So here's the application. Prayer is the most powerful yet most neglected gift God has given. It not only cultivates your relationship with him, it also allows you to cultivate your relationship with others as you pray for their needs. And so the question is, do you minister to others through prayer? Here's a great question. Can others count on you to pray for them. I'm counting on you to pray for me and the staff. We have temptations, we have things out there in our life. I think one of the greatest things I feel or see is when people say, Hey, I just want to let you know I'm praying for you and the staff, and here's how I'm praying for you. We got people are counting on us. Mom and dad, your kids may not know it. They're counting on you to pray for them. It's all there. In conclusion, James's letter does not just demonstrate how faith works. It serves as an effective tool to help you determine, is there proof that you have true faith in Jesus and live his truth? And so really the question is, what has this study revealed about your faith? Where are you when it comes to what you say is faith? Let's pray. Father, we just come to you right now and we thank you for your word. And I guess there's one thing that really stands out for me, Lord, as, as I prepared this message, is, is that whole idea of standing in the gap for those who need our prayers. Father, I pray for the emotionally sick that may be here this morning, those who are discouraged, those who are borderline depressed. And, and Father, I just pray right now that you help them not to turn to unhealthy escapes, But, Father, that they would turn to you and your word, that they would be bold enough to cry out and call others to to come alongside of them to support them. Father, I pray for the physically sick, Lord. I know there's some in this room who've gotten tough reports when it comes to their health. I know others that can't be in this room that are at home dealing with major physical crises. Father, you know that our prayer is for healing. But, Father, give us your mind in the matter. Father, I pray again for those who are spiritually sick, Lord and Lord, that's the one that's eternal. That's the one that's going to outlive any kind of sickness there is. Father, if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that they come to know you through your truth. And Father, if there's someone here that's wayward from the truth, I pray they return to the truth, that they would realize this is your best for them, that they would not follow the deceptions of the enemy in this world. Father, we thank you for the the author of this letter, James, and thank you for the way that he basically has put our faith on trial. And so, Father, we close this out with this thought. Is our faith true? Father, help us all to investigate that. In Jesus' name.